Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Jane's Talks. It's great to have you all here today. Um, I've got another guest with me today on Jane's Talks called Pamela Hodges. Pamela Hodges is a friend of mine. Um, we did the Tribe Writers course together about three years ago and um, we've been friends ever since. Um, she is a writer and a blogger and creative person and author and today we're going to have a bit of a chat about um, well creativity and writing and blogging and all sorts of things. So um, welcome Pamela. Hello James, it's nice to nice to be here to chat. <laughs> yeah, this is actually the first time we've chatted, even though we've been we've known each other for for about three years, which is kind of funny, I think. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, cool. So, just tell us a bit of your story, Pamela. Well, I grew up in uh, Canada, and I've always uh, had the idea that if you want something, you learn how to do it or you make it. Like, for example, my my uh, mom wanted lamps, so. She, she took my dad to the store and said, Bill, I would like these lamps for Christmas. And my dad said, okay, well, I'll make them. So he took out his tape measure and he measured the lamps and he made the lamps. So that idea of creating something and making something has always been with me. And ever since I was little, I wanted to be an artist. Like I always drew, I always painted and the Growing up, though, the concept of making a living from being an artist was not something that my parents grew up with. They were both uh, grew up in farm farming community, yeah. and the way that you would make a living would be like in their mind they would think maybe teacher, doctor. So my mom said to me, "Pamela, I think you should be a teacher." And I said, "Mom, I really want to go to art school. I really want to go to art school." And she said, "Well, no, you'll never make a living at that." So I enrolled in college I took an education class and because you know when you're 16 or 17 and you're not really sure what direction to go and what you're supposed to take so I took an education class and I took an art class and my art class I got 93 percent and I loved it that's all I ever thought about and in my education class I think I failed I think I got like a 57 it might have been a passing grade so that summer I said no I'm not going to live my life for someone else. I dropped out of education. I dropped out of the college. I uh, I was enrolled in a whole another year of education. I dropped out of all those classes. I stood in line with everyone else, and I took a because I had pre-registered for the education courses, but now I was like a late register. So I stood in line and I took printmaking art history, and a drawing class. And I vacuumed carpets from 4 till 9 in the morning and saved my money, and uh, eventually I applied to an art school that was eight hours away. So then it was my life. Then I pursued the art. That's fantastic. Wow, so you did that course. How long ago was that? I went to art school in 1983. I was... 21, I was an older student because I had done a year of university. And then after I dropped out of college and took the art classes for a semester, then the somewhere in there I took a year rail pass and went to – oh, that was what I did after I – I did a year of education, and then I took a year where I just took art classes and vacuum carpets. And then I took a, a trip overseas to Europe – 
and worked on a kibbutz wow. for four years. No, not four years. Wait, four months. And then I came back and moved to the uh, Calgary, Alberta, and went to a four-year art school. So that whole concept of, like, this is my life and what dream am I pursuing, at some point you have to decide, no, I'm not going to do what my parents want me to do or I'm not going to follow the safe path. Well, I'm not saying that following art's not a safe path, but it's not what my parents' generation would have considered a viable option. Mm. Wow. So you've been doing that ever since, have you? I mean, is that is that basically what you what you do now? I mean, what's your kind of day-to-day work? Well, okay, so four years of art school, I graduate, and then I take a, I buy a one-way ticket to Thailand. So I graduate from art school, and I knew my friends, my friends said, oh, you could get a job teaching English in Tokyo. So I thought, oh, great, I'll graduate with a degree in photography. I was a photography major, so I graduated from art school. I worked that summer actually doing construction at the zoo, bending rebar and painting cement forms. Saved all that money, and then my friends were supposed to meet me in Tokyo. They were supposed to have an apartment and help me get a job teaching English. So about a month before I'm supposed to leave to go to Tokyo, they call and they say, we don't like Japan. We're going to go to Bangkok. So meet us in Bangkok at Christmas. Now, I already had bought a ticket. It's a one-way ticket to Bangkok with a leg stopping in Tokyo. So I'm not even going to stay in Tokyo right now. I'm going to go all the way to Bangkok and spend Christmas with them. But I don't really think I had a lot of money saved for my return ticket to come home. So there I was two weeks before I was supposed to leave. I get a phone call, and she says, guess where I am? And I said, I don't know. You're in Bangkok. And she goes, no, I'm back in Canada. We got sick in opium dens. So here I was, I was going to fly and hang out with these people that I didn't know were doing drugs that heavily. So now I ha- I'm not going to Bangkok. I still have a one-way ticket and I fly to Tokyo and I stayed seven years. Wow. So I arrived and got a job teaching English and then eventually started working for the only English magazine at the time in Tokyo was the Tokyo Journal. And I started doing work in there, uh, doing paste up. Mm-hmm. Where you, before it was, oh, probably three or four years before everything went digital. So we actually had, I don't know the word in English, but we called it kamiyaki, where you had the type, you'd send in the copy and they'd send it back in a printed form and then you had to cut and paste and glue. And if there was a spelling mistake, you'd have to take your little knife and cut out the letters and change it. And then I, I, then I made contacts and worked as a commercial and fashion photographer in Tokyo for seven years. And then I was doing some writing then, but I was taking the photographs and doing the writing. And I remember submitting the stories to the editor for some of the magazines. And she said, oh, you're a horrible writer. And she completely rewrote my whole story. And then, so that was really discouraging. Some, I still did write and take photographs. uh, I did some for some business magazines, but I never really considered myself a writer. I just wrote. I don't know if, you understand, you know, yeah, get the distinction. Yeah, I definitely understand that. Yeah, so, uh, so, um, 
So, okay, so so how do you get there to what you're doing, to kind of what you're doing now? Kind of bring us more up-to-date in terms oh, of... Oh, more up-to-date, rather than the, like, the novel of my past. So three years ago, okay, so then I'm a mom, and I do all that mom stuff and kind of put my dreams on the back burner. You know, I dabble here and there. I keep journals and just this burning passion to write. And then three years ago, I started reading Jeff Goins' blog, goinswriter.com and he talked all about believe in yourself call yourself a writer and I thought oh you mean I just have to call myself a writer because I met a woman in Pennsylvania and I said what do you do and she said I'm a writer and I thought oh I met a writer she said I am a writer and I thought wow why did she get to say that like you know what what rules did she follow or what certificates in her back pocket? Who said, who gave her permission to say, I'm a writer? And nobody. She just said, I'm a writer. She was writing and she was getting paid for it. So then after reading all of Jeff's stuff, of uh, Jeff Goins' stuff, I went, oh, hey, I'm a writer. I write. And then just and then when he had the tripartite class, that just made such a difference to make the investment in learning more about writing. You know how to blog, how to you know make contacts, and the community was just amazing. So that totally yeah. changed my life three years ago. That whole concept of saying I'm a writer that that really made a difference. So how did you begin to kind of find your voice and kind of start? start writing and, and uh, uh, you know, writing. obviously you've written, you've written e-books and stuff and um, now. So how did you, and you've got a really great blog. Um, so how, how did that all kind of, how did that all kind of evolve and happen? Well, when I started the blog, it took me about, I started it a year before I started reading Jeff Goins' blog. And it took me almost three years to start the blog because I couldn't, choose a typeface there was just too many options so finally my husband said just do it just pick one so I picked one and my first post was something about being imperfect so there was a real fear like even when I published it I'm like oh lord please don't let anybody read this because I was so nervous about uh, anyone commenting on it or that I might get uh, negative comments so then I read Seth Godin, and he suggested writing every day and that you just write every day. Something that you see in your world that's not so much a journal but an, an analysis on something that you notice in the world. And then the more I wrote, the more confident I got. Mm. So I developed my voice by speaking. I think that's how you develop a voice is by using it. So if you don't write... I don't think a person can develop their voice because they're not actually writing. So, so, so just say that again, you develop your voice by using it. Yeah. You develop your voice by speaking. Right. That's really good wisdom, I think, because I think, I mean, that's certainly kind of how I found my voice as well. was kind of, well, not literally physically speaking, but writing every day. Um, well, I still consider that speaking because you're yeah. writing and you're like yeah. I know we've never like looked at each other and had a Skype call before, but I we've sent typed messages back and forth, like we've talked a lot. So yeah. I've 
if we had never communicated at all, like I feel like that we're friends, but we just never did a Skype thing, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. The speaking doesn't just refer to physical speaking. It means right. writing, you know, um, words, you know, by doing the, right. doing the stuff, you know. Um, and that's definitely how I found my voice as well, by speaking, you know. Um, because as you're speaking, you start to find something inside, right. you know, like, especially when it's kind of like, for me, it's always been free writing, you know, because right. that gets out a lot of the garbage on the outside and then you dig into what's really on the inside. I don't know if that's been your experience, but, um, yeah, I, I just read a book recently about the idea of, of free writing to find out what you're thinking and then, and then, like, edit it or, you know, what you're going to make public. Mm. I found that the more, if I wrote every day, I would start looking for things, like, oh, what do I notice today or what could I write about or when it, what insight is there? But if I don't do that, then one day comes into the next and I haven't written for weeks on my blog. So do you, yeah. Did you find that the more you wrote, the more you found what you wanted to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had a three-month sabbatical from public blogging and I just wrote every day on a private blog and in time it came to become like the most creative period of my life you know I mean I've, I've talked about this with other people you know and it, it's it's kind of actually gave birth to where I am now like in terms of what I'm doing and you know the kind of books that I'm writing and the blog posts that I've written and kind of the whole direction of my work has kind of come out of that time um, it's where I really, that's where I really found my voice, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely with you there. That's a, I mean, that's a great phrase. You develop your voice by speaking. I think that's a really good, really good thing to remember. Definitely. Um, so, so yeah, so what kind of, what did you find that was your kind of, the, your passion? The thing, what was your, what was your voice? I mean, what were you passionate about creating and writing about? Well, initially, I would just be kind of goofy, like, um, thinking about people not valuing their life or finding joy in the everyday, or I'd write about, like, um, my friend Joy, I promise to pray for her every day. She has a son with Down syndrome, so I buy Joy Dishope. So I wrote a lot about kind of day-to-day, like, I call them slice-of-life blogging. So now I'm still talking about those kind of things, but talking more about art. Like, I really want to encourage people to believe that they can draw. Now, not everybody might not want to draw, but that everybody is an artist and everyone can draw. I think that what happens is that children are really confident in their ability to express themselves with crayons or pencil crayons, but once they get into school... And they notice that the teacher likes a certain style better that they'll start to draw that way. Like they don't, they kind of lose who they are as a person. Maybe because art's so public, people can see what you're drawing at school. Yeah. I've always had the kind of, I've always felt like it's wrong to, when you have like an art class, like at school or wherever, that to have it graded is a bit kind of defeats the object because art's kind of subjective it's kind of well you know you can't just say that's that's good and that's not i think all art is valid and i think that's 
I think certainly at school, I think kids, personally, I would say that kids need to be just encouraged to express themselves. And it's not about necessarily about, you know, meeting some sort of criteria. It's just about expressing who they are and being free to express that and put it out there without any fear. And I think that helps us. That, if we can all have that attitude to, to, to what we do creatively, that, that will help. That, that really helps us, I think. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Because sometimes a teacher would say, well, I like this art, so this gets an A, and you don't get an A, you get a C, because it doesn't look like a cow, but it might have been really expressive. Yeah. I, this It wasn't an art class, but I took a creative writing class, and the first day of class, the teacher told us the grading criteria, and he said, if you're late, or you skip classes, or your assignments are handed in late, you lose grade points. And there was one student that was missed several classes and always handed his assignments in two or three weeks late, but his writing was superb. So last class, we all went out for uh, Mexican food, the professor and everyone in this creative writing class, and he says, I've decided to give everyone an A because it's art. Everyone's creative and art is subjective. And I was so mad because it's like rewarding somebody's irresponsibility. Like, mm. so there's other things to include in grading besides, you know, subjectively. Well, I don't really believe it's good or bad in an art class, but that whole concept of, of not wanting to discourage anyone. So he just gave everybody an A. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Definitely. Um, Okay, here's an example about what we were talking about with the art. I was teaching Mm. in a homeschool co-op, an art class, and we were drawing from reference, and there was one student that just drew an eye, you know, like just focused in on one thing, and it was graphic, and it was really interesting. And against my better judgment, because a little voice in my head was saying, Pamela, don't do this, don't say that. So I picked up his drawing, and I said, Here's an example where you focus on one element. And so I drew attention to this one student. And then within seconds, people had turned their paper over and were drawing, at least five students did it, were drawing the exact same eye. So they thought, oh, she singled him out. She, oh, my teacher likes that. Okay, I'm going to do that now. Not for them to think, well, how do I interpret what the assignment was? So they wanted the attention. Yeah. So yeah, it's so careful. Like, and and when I was teaching uh, one of the other moms, because I said I don't want anyone going around saying, "Oh, I love this. Oh, this is so great." Like singling out one student over another, because this one mom came over and she goes, "There was like eight kids drawing," and she singled out one student and said, "This is absolutely amazing. Look at this." And she brought all the teachers over, all the moms over, and said, oh, this is just so brilliant. Well, it was interesting, but all the other kids that are learning how to express themselves, you know, you could see they were discouraged, and some of them started to imitate this other kid's style. Right. So it's almost like you can be punished by praise. Yeah. Because then you'll, you'll never explore another style because you want Oh, my teacher likes this style. Yeah, because you get security in being praised. Right. 
and you think, well, I'll stick with that because that will get me praise and that will make me feel better. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, that's kind of, on a bigger scale, that would be like writing a type of, writing certain types of books. Yes. And having success with them. So never going back to a different genre, never trying different kinds of topics, never um, exploring any kind of kind of area of you know right. of writing, yeah, you know, kind of thing. I mean, I know that we all have our own niche and our own voice and stuff, but at the same time, we shouldn't be afraid. I still think we shouldn't be afraid to try different to go to go where we're being led. You know, to go right. where if we're being led to go somewhere completely different to where we've gone before, we shouldn't be afraid to go there. And right. I guess what I guess what you're kind of alluding to, and I agree with you totally, is that the danger is if you get if you have one area where you're being successful, you stay there, and if you have an idea that's something totally different, you don't you don't acknowledge it, you don't do it because you think, well, that won't get me the same. That might not get me the same success as I got before. You know. Right. Um, actually, Elizabeth Gilbert, I, um, she's because she's written she before she wrote Eat, Pray, Love, she'd written mainly. I think she'd written mainly fiction, and that was her first memoir. I think and she hadn't written many memoirs before that, so that was kind of a that was kind of a shift out of what she was used to, um, and obviously it was really successful. But um, I mean, her most recent book is a kind of shift as well because it's a um, Big Magic, which is a book about creativity. It's one of the best books about creativity I've ever read. Um, but it's kind of a self-help book, which again, she said, she said, I heard her talking about it, and she said she'd never written a book like this before, you know. Um, it was kind of a step into the unknown in terms of genre, you know. But she was willing to take that risk. Um, would you recommend that book? I, I would recommend that book to everybody. It's the best book on creativity I've ever read, literally. Oh, cool! Yeah, I'll um, check that out. Um, it's amazing. But I read the first sixty pages in about in one sitting, basically, and I never do that with any book. Um, it's it's yeah really inspiring, encouraging. There's a great podcast that goes with it as well, Magic Lessons. Um, so um, oh, write that down. Recommend Thanks, that. James. Recommend that to everybody, everybody listening. Uh, <laughs> big Magic and uh, Magic Lessons. Check those check, check those out. And the big families with your but yeah. Um, well, the latest Rolling Stone just put out a special edition of Bob Dylan. It's like a nonfiction analyzing all his albums and. I bought it because I wanted to read about his life and a lot of his albums are different. So I thought that was interesting from a musician standpoint that people might pigeonhole you as having a certain kind of music and then how you adapt as an artist to create how you want to create. So similar to what you were talking about with Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah. I mean, I, people expect certain things from you. Yeah, I mean, actually, I, I've talked about this example lots of times. One big example for me is um, U2, um, Acting Baby. Because after, because they just had uh, The Joshua Tree, which had been really successful. And everyone, pretty much everyone knows that album. Um, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the great all-time albums. Um, and they come off their tour following that. Um, and they were kind of, everyone was expecting to make Joshua Tree Part 2. They wanted, they wanted the next album, which was just like Joshua Tree, of the same kind of style, sound, whatever. But uh, the band were kind of falling apart, and so they had they literally went back to basics and just started jamming and wait, waiting for something to come out. And what actually came out of that that period was 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 a different 
it was still kind of still rock music, but it was a very different sound, different right. to what they've done before. It was very, very out there. You know, if they'd pitched this to their fans on a Kickstarter, um, they, they probably wouldn't have got much support for it because it's not. It didn't sound anything like they'd done anything like they'd done before. Right. But they made it anyway, and it was one of their most successful albums. And that wave of creativity kind of gave birth to another album, which they hadn't planned. Like Zero, I think Zeropa was their next album, and that was completely unplanned. It just came out of this wave of creativity that they discovered by almost like free writing, the, the equivalent of free writing with music, and um, and they weren't afraid to risk it, you know. And that's that's why I think they've had the kind of long term success that they've had because they've been willing to go back to the drawing board and risk and try new things and you know and evolve and not just stay where they are and stay with what works which a lot of musicians do. Um, so, um, yeah, I definitely, I'm definitely all with that kind of, we need to kind of avoid getting stuck where we are and stuck in security and uncertainty in terms of our creativity, because otherwise it doesn't, it loses its freshness, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. Always being willing to just follow the muse, which you can only really do by sitting in your chair and working. That's right. I think that's the only way to find it is to actually do the work. Yeah, I totally, I can, I'm totally with you. Um, so can so I tell you a funny story about YouTube? And YouTube, yeah. 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 So I was living in Tokyo from 83 to 90, and I'd never heard of YouTube, didn't know who they were, but uh, they were playing in Tokyo, and I had a, my friend's friend was a photographer, and I got to go, and hang around backstage. I had oh, no wow. idea who they were. So I met them. I met Bono. And then there was a huge bus, and we all went for pizza in Tokyo after. So somewhere <laughs> I have my backstage pass signed. That's awesome. That's yeah. phenomenal. <laughs> like, oh, my goodness. Just as an aside. Oh, yeah. wow. So you've met, you literally met you two and met Bono. Wow. But I, but, I, but I didn't even know who they were or that they were that big. Oh, man, so. that's so funny. I think that's just, <laughs> that is just hilarious. Oh, man. Wow. That's very cool. You should you should talk about that more often, seriously. Yeah, well, that's funny. It is an ultimately cool thing to have met you two and Bono, even if you didn't know who they were. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's one of the coolest things. Like, <laughs> you could milk that for a lot. So, and that backstage pass... <laughs> Might be worth a lot of money on eBay. I'm, sus- I'm suspecting. Not that I, but if I had a backstage pass, I wouldn't sell it. I keep it. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to look because it's in the CD case. I stuck it in the CD case. The backstage pass, I kept it. Right. So actually, I'll look for that. That's a, wow. It, yeah. So I was culturally illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> Still cool though. <laughs> Still yeah. cool. Still cool. Fantastic. So. so- Okay, so even though, okay, you have creative people, right? And you have creative people who are famous and make a lot of money, and you have creative people who are unknown. So in my mind, there's no difference. So even though they were really famous and I got to go backstage, when I met them, it was like, hi, I'm Pamela, what's your name? Like, I I met so many well, I guess famous in Tokyo, famous designers, because I we I had to go to uh, fashion shows. So I would go up to these really famous designers and say, "Okay, what's your name?" Like I never met you, right? So either that or I was socially 
socially ignorant about how to approach people, but I think there's kind of a, I don't know how to say it. If I introduce myself to someone, I'd say, hi, I'm Pamela. What's your name? Not hi, I'm Pamela. I'm not, I'm supposed to know who you are because you make so much money. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, just there's no difference. So I, yeah, we're all I people. No, yeah. yeah, I had no problem saying to these famous musicians, hi, I'm Pamela, what's your name? Like, I don't know. So I think... That's what I mean. I would, I would hope that I would be the same. That's yeah. Nice. Yeah. So that was just an aside on, you know, meeting Bono. I think that's really important, actually, that, you know, I mean, the lack of ego on kind of both, I mean, like, on both sides, in a sense, in that, they don't have an ego and that you don't kind of sit in awe of them kind of just because they right. they're famous or they you know they've got a lot of money or whatever um but we're all, we're all kind of human beings on the same journey we've all got insecurities and fears and doubts right. and issues and things we have to deal with and you know um whether whatever our kind of position or status is kind of irrelevant in terms of relationships, should be irrelevant in terms of our relationships. Right. Um, that's, and I think that's really, really important. And certainly as creative people, um, I mean, we're, I think we're all creative, but, you know, people who do art, kind of the work of art, the art of work or whatever, um, we need to kind of let go of our ego. It's really, really important because um, if we're doing stuff just to boost our ego, then that's not healthy at all. Especially when we fail, because we'll all fail at some point. Right. So actually, the failure is not getting up. Yeah. That would be failure. Yeah. That's what I consider failure. Failure is quitting. Like if, okay, let, I have a book out. It's free on my blog right now on ipaintiwrite.com. It's uh, The Artist Manifesto. Um, fight resistance, believe you are an artist, and create. And I'm learning uh, Adobe InDesign right now to format it. I'm working on the drawings, and then I'm going to publish it, self-publish it on CreateSpace. Awesome. And then the whole premise behind the book is that, you know, stop listening to all those negative voices that say you can't draw, whether it's from your teacher when you were a little kid or somebody said something to you that was negative, and that you still, and then to go ahead and believe that you can create it's like a manifesto to say, yes, I believe in myself. I am an artist. Now, the funny thing was the whole book says, believe in yourself, believe in yourself. Okay, so then I'm not saying I have all this figured out. I'm like, no, I'm with you. I'm standing with you holding a crayon. We're in this battle together. Because as I make the drawings, my fear was that somebody would say, well, Hodges, no, you can't draw. Who are you kidding? So even though the book is, I'm telling you to believe in yourself, I have to believe in myself to actually put the illustrations in the book. They're like yeah. gesture kind of cartoony drawings. So wow. I, 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 it's, for me, it's easier for me to identify with somebody who's still in the process of figuring it out rather than saying, I've got this all figured out. I'm perfect. Now let me teach you. So, so I, I'm coming alongside rather than being authoritarian and saying, I'm, I figured it out. Now let me help you. Yeah. So sort of a different approach. I, I, I prefer, I say I prefer that approach because I think, I don't think any of us, really have it all sorted out at all i think 
brought her on a kind of, I, I hate to say that we're brought her on a journey because that sounds a bit cheesy, but um, we are. Um, we're all right. kind of, we're all on the kind of, we'll, you know, we never stop learning. You never stop growing. You never stop moving forward. If you do, then you just stagnate and get stuck, you know. Um, I think my, my perspective, my opinion is that the wise people are the ones who realize they always got something new to learn. Right. Um, and they're the people that I like to follow. The people that are always looking to learn and grow and, uh, and also kind of open about their, you know, their failures, their mistakes. Um, right. And that so kind of thing. So being real. Yeah, exactly. Um, the people that act like they've got it all together, that, that's, I can't, I, I struggle with that because I know that they haven't. Nobody has. Right. Um, so, uh, the, yeah, so talking about your book, um, it's called um, The Artist Manifesto, isn't it? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah The yeah. Artist Manifesto. And it's on this free on your blog. It's a really good book, everybody. Um, Thank you, James. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, tell us about how you deal with creative resistance, because that's quite, because obviously the book's a bit about resistance and dealing with resistance. So how do you kind of experience that and then kind of push through? Okay, so... I have resistance all the time. The only thing that's helped me is having a strict deadline. So I started writing for the right practice, and I write every second Tuesday. And I don't think I would have written any if Joe Bunting, the editor, had just said, well, you know, send it to me when you get something done. I would have never done it. And then in the beginning, I would be up till 3 or 4 in the morning the night before finishing up the story and sending it in. Now I've backed it up a couple days. I'm not doing it the night before. And then I'm in the middle right now of doing a book, uh, Color the Cats, Coloring Pages. Uh, it's a coloring book of cat drawings. Wow. And I have a deadline of getting everything done by Monday so I can, uh, getting all my drawings done today and tomorrow, then formatting it to send it off for the proof because I want it done on Amazon before the Christmas rush. Well, today, I all I want to do is go and watch uh, Jessica Jones, uh, the Marvel comic thing. And I said, hey, I, my husband, Nick, I said, let's go watch Jessica Jones. And he says, no, that's resistance because I'm supposed to draw 13 cats today and I've only drawn one and it's 5 o'clock at night. So all I want to do is just watch tv so i actually have to it's like a self-talk like no you can't do that you have to do this it's like saying no to myself yeah i i really because i'm constantly finding something else to do yeah. besides doing what i'm supposed to do yeah and i don't know if it's fear over finishing it i don't know what's going on but one thing um stephen pressfield on his blog and we were talking about this, and he said, the bigger the battle, the bigger the dragon. So if you have a project and you're not feeling much resistance, it's probably not that important to you. So right now, I feel like I have a Tyrannosaurus Rex in my kitchen, and I'm having this huge battle because this project is so important to me. So the bigger the dream, the bigger the dragon. So you have to fight harder. Yeah, like, and it's really self-discipline and saying no 
to something, even saying, it's not saying no to something bad. It's actually saying no to things you really want to do. Like if a friend said, oh, let's, there's this great sale. Let's go and we'll go do this. I'm like, oh, I'd really love to do that. But I have to say no to it or even no to other opportunities because yeah. I want to finish this. Yeah. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I think so. it's a very, it's, it's, you have to say no more than you say yes, actually. Yes. Exactly. Um, I think, and that's my, that's my, certainly my experience. And it's much harder to say no than it is to say yes, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, um, especially when there's lots of temptations around and distractions and things like that. And I struggle with that with Netflix. You know, it's like so difficult. There's, there's so much stuff on there, and you always want to, like Jessica Jones, I, I kind of, I'd look, kind of like to watch that, you know, and then Doctor Who's on there and all that kind of thing. So um, I always kind of want to watch that and um, instead of write. And when you haven't got an office either, it's kind of even more challenging because I have to do my writing basically in my lounge. Um, you oh, know, right. So I've got, even if I'm not facing the TV, I know the TV's right there. Um, it's quite a big lounge, but, um, and I've got a table in it where I can write on. But, um, yeah, so that, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I think I think one of the things for me is that I, is, is, is if you said yes to something bigger, then it actually makes it easier to say no to other things. I heard Rob Bell say that once, but you know, you need to, you need to, to, to be able to say no, you need to just need to have said yes to the right thing. So if you say yes to the kind of, I'm going to make this book, I'm going to do this drawing, I'm going to, whatever the project is, um, then you can go back to that every time you're tempted to say no, uh, to, tempted to say yes to something else, which will distract you from it. So you can say, so you can say, I'm going to say no to this, this thing because I've said yes to this already. So yeah, I that makes sense. Um, and that, I mean, that still it doesn't make it entirely easy, but it's still, I think it kind of gives you a way into pushing through. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I can I can visualize the finished product, but the only way to get there is to actually do the work. Yeah. Like, there's no other way around it. The only way to finish it is to start and then to actually do the messy middle. The funny thing is, is that I absolutely love drawing. It's so much fun. Like, some of the drawings that I've done wouldn't, like, these drawings wouldn't exist if I hadn't drawn them. Mm. Which is, I mean, it's, I know that's an obvious thing, but it's like if you, there's just so much magic with a blank piece of paper and a pen. And then it's just, I, I think drawing is so much like writing. They're both creative. You both sit down, you know, both of them, you sit down to a blank piece of paper. One of them you put words on and one of them you put images on. And then you don't know what's going to come out until you actually do the work. Cause some of the drawings that I've done, I'm like, Oh, well, that's kind of fun. Like, Oh, uh, there's a, a cat called cow. So I drew him as a farmer and then, you know, another uh, Siamese cat called flea. And then when the, when the coloring book started out, it was basically a fiction book. Like all the drawings were made up. They looked like cats, but they weren't associated with the real cat. And then I thought, Oh, well let's ask for models. So then I asked in a few different Facebook group for cat models. So now they've become nonfiction cats like flea had a bad case of fleas. That's how he got, no, I think it was our, she, she, that's how she got her name flea. So 
she's drawn surrounded by all these teeny weeny weeny little fleas and then there's stories like their rescue stories one one cat was actually thrown out of a car on a busy highway in in dallas texas and the family right behind was fortuitously they found the cat on the side of the highway and rescued it so that there's so much drama in these little kitties' lives. So mm. I think that makes a coloring book better because they're real cats. So even yeah. even in yeah. like when you're writing a story between fiction and nonfiction, you want your fictional characters to feel like nonfiction, you know, well-rounded characters. Yeah. So there's so much interplay with writing and drawing. It's, I think it's quite amazing that they're the approach is so similar. Yeah, I think. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's all, it's all, it's all connected, isn't it? I mean, the kind of the process I think is very similar, but obviously there's different elements to it. Um, you know, because the practice, you know, the practice of drawing is different to the practice of writing, but essentially it's kind of the same thing. You're bringing something into the world which wasn't in there, wasn't in the world before. You know? Right. Exactly. And it's something that has to come from inside of you, and. In that sense, you know, whatever it's whether it's writing or drawing or painting or um, music, it's it's the, it's essentially the same the same thing, um, just a different expression of the same thing. So the processes are going to be very similar. Yes, yeah, that's true. Like even even when you write, you edit, right? You do your rough draft. So you could do pre sketches and then use your pre sketches to do your final, or you go in and edit. I I don't really like the idea of erasing mistakes or like I never think of writing as as a mistake. It's an adjustment, like when you edit. So uh, when someone's drawing and they take an eraser, I don't even like the word eraser. I've decided I want to call them adjusters. <laughs> that's fast. That's 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 great. I like that idea actually. Yeah. <laughs> I need my adjuster. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> Oh, wow. So, yeah, actually, you talk about cats a lot. Um, you've got, well, no, you haven't got two blogs. You've got a blog and your cat's got a blog. In fact, both right. of your cats have had a blog because um, you had a cat and it passed away and then you got a new cat and that took over the blog, didn't it? Is that right? That's what... Yeah, the blog's called The Cat Who Writes, thecatwhowrites.com, and the first cat who wrote was uh, Pooh Hodges. He preferred the name William because people kept teasing him his name was Pooh, like as in, you know, Pooh. And actually, Pooh was really good friends with some writers. They would email Pooh, and um, Pooh would request interviews, and the cat would dictate and I would type. Wow. And I'm sticking to my story. <laughs> no, that's got to be some cat, seriously. My and then the, the new cat, Harper, um, she's a younger kitten she's still learning how to read so she just tells me what she wants to say because she and then i'll read to her because she hasn't had a chance to read malcolm gladwell yet right cool well yeah i, I love cats i mean i love cats. and that that blog is brilliant i absolutely love that blog um um so pass my regards on to <laughs> um to harper i'll tell to harper. harper yeah yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of cats. My sister's got a few cats, and um, I'm convinced one of them. I'm convinced one of my sister's cats is secretly pissing boots. I am really oh, convinced possibly. about that. Yeah, he looks like it. You know, he looks just like him, and um, yeah, he's suspiciously quite chilled out a lot of the time. But I think he's got this other side to him. Yeah. So 
Yeah. Well, that's 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 pretty. See, I love. I just love um, the way that that blog's kind of created itself. That's a really great piece of creativity in itself, um, and not just the writing, but the whole concept. Oh, the know? whole concept. Yeah, I've I've really had fun with it to have that avenue. Yeah. Oh, and then something that I do for the month of December on my blog. It's called Toy December. I there's I have uh, five plastic toys and on the last day in November they come alive and every day I find them in a different spot in the house. They uh, my husband said to me this year I really hope the toys this year don't write on the wall because last year they played X's and O's on the wall in the kitchen with a red crayon. So I said I'm sorry, honey. I don't know what they're going to do. But if they do make a mess, it'll be on the walls I haven't repainted yet. So hopefully when the toys come alive. Oh, cool. Which is really, it's a, it's a fun thing to do, to have that little bit of fantasy. You've got an incredible imagination, Pamela. You really have. That's really, really cool. Oh, thank you. It's yeah. just, a, just a, fun way to, I don't, a fun way to look at life, that, that life can still be fun. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget that life can be fun. Almost, we can feel guilty as well for having fun sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. especially the world as it is, you know, you kind of like, well, yeah, people are dying and, you know, there's violence and all this kind of thing. And this is going on right now. And But, you know, how, how can we dare have fun, you know? Um, and, you know, while I would always say that you need to take the important things seriously and, you know... Um, give them what they the respect they deserve, and you know that kind of thing. But I think you need to have joy. I think having joy in spite of what you go through is actually a really good way to grow. It's a really good way to deal with what's going on. Yes. Um, it kind of, I think it kind of shows you what's really, really important. You know, um, I was talking about this the other day with that. Uh, um, just about giving thanks and how when my mum died I you know you start my mum mum dying was the worst day of my life and but in the end what got one of the things that got me through was starting to give thanks for some of the for the good the good things that she brought into my life and remembering some of my best memories and the best things about her and being thankful for those things and and then that kind of gave me a bit of hope, you know, and, and it's good to, and, and and I remember the day that she died, I, I was meant to be going out to the pub for a drink with my friends that evening and I wasn't going to go. My dad told me to go and just to disconnect and just get away from it for a bit. Um, because sometimes you need to do that, you know, um, you need to kind of disconnect sometimes and just recharge and have a bit and, and have fun. And have joy, you know. Uh, and that doesn't mean you don't care about what's happened, uh, or you, or that, you know, that it's any less difficult. It just means that um, you're trying to have a healthy perspective. You're trying to deal with it in a way which is which will allow you to move beyond it at some point. Did you go to the pub the night your mom died? I I did. Yeah, um, I went, and the people I went with knew my mum. And they, they'd known me for a long time. And so they were kind of like, you know, we're really sorry. I hope you're okay. Um, 
you know, kind of, if you want to talk about it, we'll talk about it. But it was just, I mean, I don't drink heavily, you know, I was just, it was just a social thing. Um, right. I just hung out with them. We just talked and hung out and had a few jokes and whatever. And just if they, you know, they said, look, whatever you need, just, that's fine. You know, if you just need to disconnect for a while, that's, because right. I'd had a bit, I'd had a really heavy day, you know, um, a really intense day. And my dad just said, you need to just get away and be with friends, you know. And, um, and it was really helpful actually, you know, cause I was able to come back the next day to the, to the situation with kind of fresh eyes, you know, and, and recharged a little bit, um, with a kind well, it's of, it's good you have the support of your friends. And yeah. I'm so sorry your mom, your mom died. One thing I'm really grateful for from what I've read in your writing is that you had her unconditional love. Yeah. So you've you've always got that, even though she's not here to talk to and. Yeah, yeah. That was one thing about my mum. She was, you know, uh, totally non-judgmental um, and just unconditional love. Whatever you did, there was no judgment. There was no condemnation. It was just love all the time. You know, um, and she didn't care whether you were a big success or nobody knew who you were. You know, it didn't matter to her. Um, yeah, she, none of that mattered. Um, so, and that had a big impact on who I am, you know. And that was one of the things I took away, you know, with, with that. Um, oh, that's, that's great. So, it's so great that you have that. What was your mom's first name? Or what is your mom's first name? Flora. Flora, like F-L-O-R-A? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, and she was a writer actually she was um, well she was a poet more than a writer um, she wrote a whole load of poetry and um, got published actually as well and oh, she did cool. it she did it just for joy you know she just loved doing it you know and it actually helped her deal with a lot of the stuff that she had to go through in her life as well it okay. helped her process a lot of the things she went through so um, you know and that's kind of where I picked up my, my kind of talent for writing I think um from her side of the family, you know, um, yeah. So, so that's what. So, the, I mean, the point. If the point being that, um, it's good to it's good to have joy and to smile and to, you know, and to celebrate. Sometimes, you know, celebrate. I mean, when my mum died, we didn't. It was we tried to make it a celebration of life rather than just a kind of depressed, you know, um, just you know, kind of dark occasion you know when we had her funeral and her wake and stuff we tried to make it a celebration of her life and remembering the good things about her life rather than the opposite um because right yeah because the joy is obvious no 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 the, the sorrow is obvious the joy in who she was to focus on that is actually really a, a gift to bring to the day yeah like the day of mourning because i mean well, my dad died 17 years ago, and it was just so devastating that he was gone. But for years, I would still think, oh, what am I going to get him for Christmas? Like, he was a hunter, so when I'd get a hunting magazine in the mail, I'd think, oh, oh, wait, no, he's dead. So that whole concept of them being gone, but I still feel like he's part of my life. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I totally feel the same about my mum, you know. I feel like I carry her with me, you know, um, as part of me um, in many mm -hmm. ways. I think that's what 
that's what happens you know and and this kind of i think this principle that we're talking about is like in in terms of creativity it it's when you have a failure um when things go wrong right you just keep going you know and you get up and you get and you keep and you just do the next do the next right thing you know you write the next line you draw the next picture you right you write the next melody you know um and you acknowledge what's happened and but you but you get up and you keep going um i think like you said before you know the real failure is giving up completely right quitting is the failure um and and the thing about life too that i realize i don't know maybe because i've lived through many experiences is that is that life will never be perfect there will always be flat tires and like you said it's how you deal with it and then you take the next step the next right step and to, and to get up again absolutely yeah, yeah. so um, what would you have done differently if you'd had your time again I mean looking back at your story what would you have done differently I would not have focused 100% on my children I would have kept writing I felt like there was kind of a vacuum when I was being a mom well there wasn't as many opportunities back then like because there was no blogs you pretty much had to have the go through a major publisher and I, I was being creative. I painted. I had a loom. I did weaving. So I would encourage anybody to not give up completely on finding some way to have a creative outlet. Like, so I don't know what really what I would have done differently. One one thing that I'm glad that I, the one major decision that I'm glad that I did was to take the tribrider course. Yeah. And I had been diagnosed with skin cancer that year. It was level zero, but that was kind of like the wake-up call because I kept saying, well, oh, next year I'll do it, or next year I'll do it, next year I'll do it. And then having the skin cancer, it's like, well, hey, you know, wake up, Pamela. There might not be a next year, so why not right now? Why not sign up for this class and make an investment in in learning? And uh, one one big thing I think is um, keep dreaming. You're not dead yet. Like, I heard somebody say, well, I'm 40, and I've kind of done my career, and so now I'm just going to help my kids with their dreams. And I'm like, whoa, who said that you have to stop having a passion? I mean, raise your kids and love your children, but if you want to learn how to swim, take a class in swimming. If you want to learn animation, take a class in animation. If you want to learn computer programming, buy a book like learn there's no reason that you have to stop learning because you have gray hair like i have a lot of gray hair i'm in a class right now adobe indesign at the local community college and the woman who sits next to me is 19 and then there's a 21 year old one lady's 36 and then another kid's 19 and then there was two people that dropped out and one lady was maybe a little bit older than me but she just couldn't handle the pressure. So one day I'm sitting in there, and the teacher, I said, this assignment is really hard. I was really struggling with learning this computer program. And then all of a sudden, I started to cry. Like, I couldn't talk. 
I didn't want to talk because he said, you know, what can I help you with? And I didn't want to go, <gasps> you know, I didn't want the whole class to hear me. So it took me about 20 minutes to calm down and then I could ask him questions. But after I cried, it was easier for me to focus on the assignment. And then the other thing about taking the class was I was stressing out about having it perfect. Uh, this was the, the assignment I was struggling with. We had to do an eight-page brochure, and I thought, oh, okay, this is due tomorrow. I'm just going to try to get a C. I'm going to do the best I can, and I'm going to try to get a C. Like, I don't have my grade yet, but once I took the pressure off me to be perfect, then mm. I could concentrate on learning the new skill. Yeah. So my main goal now is, like, the book I'm doing, the coloring book, I'm going to try to get a C. And then I don't have this pressure of, oh, well, I, I have to do it this way because this is the way it should be done. Like, there are no shoulds. Like, I have nonfiction cats. Nobody said to me, well, you can only do a coloring book if it's made up cats, right? So to just boldly go forth and say, this is what I want to create, and, you know, just doing the best the best that you can and cry. If you need to cry, cry. Yeah. And then, and then keep going. If you're sad because it's hard, then just cry. Yeah. Ball your eyes out. Crying is crying is healthy. Crying is good. Crying is, you know, I think um, very therapeutic as well. And we need to cry um, sometimes. Sometimes you just need to cry. <laughs> so actually, that would be what one thing I would do differently is I would I would cry more, and I wish I had tried more new things. Cool. I think my only regret is that I didn't cry a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, just to kind of draw it all to a close, um, what one piece of advice would you give to somebody who's kind of more at the beginning of their kind of creative journey? I mean, what one thing would you say to them to remember as they kind of get on this journey? Um, this is what I would suggest. I suggest you get a tube of lipstick, preferably red, Go out and buy it today and then go in your bathroom and draw a big, huge circle and put your face in the middle of it and then right beside it say, I am enough, and then go ahead and create. You don't have to compare yourself to anyone else. You don't have to copy anyone else. Just start creating that you are enough. That's, that's what I would suggest. That's brilliant advice. I, oh, wow. Fantastic. What a way to, what a way to end. You are enough. I love that. That's a, oh, I love that so much. Thank you, Pamela. It's been so good having you on today, um, talking about oh, all this you. stuff with you. Thank um, you, James. It was really, it was great to talk to. And uh, I'll definitely, we'll definitely have you back again because I think there's loads more we could talk about in relation to creativity. So um, uh, we'll definitely have you back to talk about that and about maybe about your faith and stuff as well at some point as well. So um, thank you for coming on, um, Pamela. Um, Thank you, James. It has been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Okay, well, everyone, that's that's all for James Talks for today. Um, I'll catch you all next week, and uh, take care, everyone. <laughs>